1: Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is Getting the Yes And.
2: I welcome Robert Sutton back to the podcast. Bob is an organizational psychologist and a best-selling author. He has served on the Stanford faculty since 1983. Um, he has written many books, including the bestselling No Asshole Rule. His latest book, Co-written with Huggy Rao is called The Friction Project. Uh you're gonna love this podcast. The book's great, he's a great interview. Uh, enjoy the pod.
0: Days can't be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can't be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner the highway. To the job at
3: the desk by the boss with the watch the the the, the stops bob sutton welcome back to the show oh it's great to see you again uh and, and hang out with you kelly it's always such a joy
2: yeah i'm excited to talk to you and actually i have a good way i think of starting this conversation And it's the way you actually start the book. I want us both to tell a friction story in our places of business, and I've got a pretty good one. (laughs) Uh, uh, But let's start with yours, uh, because this starts with an email and a word attachment that popped up in your inbox
3: when you were at Stanford, right? Oh, yeah. So, So one morning, I'm sitting there, you know, trying to get the day started. And from somebody who's very senior, probably the third most powerful administrator at Stanford, yeah. an email go, comes into um, my email box at Huggy. We woke up the same same email, Huggy, my co author, twelve hundred and sixty six words long, <laughs> and, and and I and, and I was in the process of editing, and I was like. This could have been four hundred words, really easy. There was all these picky, like this person was anticipating arguments as opposed mm-hmm. to, and then it had a seventy-five hundred word attachment, and it invited every uh, Stanford faculty member to devote a Saturday um, to doing like a mass brainstorm about the new sustainability school at Stanford, and and I I do I love the new sustainability school and the idea behind it. But, uh, it, it just to me showed complete ignorance, honestly, of what we call in the book, the cone of friction, yeah. that when you're in a leadership position and you, you should start multiplying, uh, the impact of the actions you take on other people. And, uh, I didn't make much progress with her, but there's a couple other university administrators I would write notes about. Um, and I would send back edited, um, emails and they got better. Because you know, during the pandemic, it was everything was virtual. So, yeah. so, so that was one of the ways. When so I was working on the book, I would procrastinate by annoying people with <laughs> with my uh, comments about their writing. And she oh, and, 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 can't we meet every other week? <laughs> I'm never sending anything to you. That's over like three sentences. <laughs> well, no, no, no you, you're 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 not in my chain of command. So I'll leave no, you alone. Okay, good. <laughs> All right. Well, let me tell you my story because that fits into the friction theme. <laughs>
2: So a friend of mine wanted to buy 22 tickets to a show on Saturday night, the Saturday night at Second City. And she reached out to me this last Monday. We will recording this on a Friday. Uh, I told her to call the box office. And the box office told her she needed to call a different department. She left a message and no one called her back that night. So I got curious and emailed her Tuesday morning to see if anyone had called her back and no one had. And this is now at 11 a.m. She called the box office again. They said all she, they could do was send her to this other phone number. Uh, and I, I want to, like, having now researched this, none of this is the fault of Second City employees. If any of you are listening, you're all fantastic. It's the system. It is a gunky, friction system. Yep. Um, and when I it got worse when people tried to tell me why this was happening. Because... <laughs> Someone was on break and the other person who this fell to was a kind of a senior person who in no way was going to be able to Uh process all these group tickets. And thank God this was a friend of mine who stuck with me for the 48 hours it took for her to get the tickets for her son's hockey team
3: what well, so so that well, well first of all i i admire your persistence and generosity in helping your friend yeah. um i and in some way that kind of friction story the the one that i opened with is is just kind of blaming a specific uh, leader for being clueless about their uh cone of friction that's one of that's one of our on ramps whatever but but your story in some ways To me, it's, it's, it's more about uh, coordination neglect, we call it. Which Mm -hmm. neglect, which is, uh, when, when, uh, the people involved in running, designing the system, uh, don't get the handoffs between different people in different silos, correct? And and that, and that's a huge problem in, in one place that. That that really happens, and that your listeners, we've all. If you're in the United States, you've experienced this, which is in healthcare, which is it's just a story of friction and fragmentation. Mm-hmm. And and I mean, in the book, we talk about uh, research by an amazing woman named Melissa Valentine. Uh, she studied the birth of a new, very well-funded cancer center, very well-funded, and uh, they hired the best people. Uh, they bought all the new be- best equipment. They built beautiful buildings. Uh, and they focused on the little pieces and not how the pieces fit together and she, and, and they and and, it, and people the, the the families the patients and so on they suffered from the cancer tax which yeah. meant that the family or uh or the patient themselves had to do all the scheduling. Had to weave together their whole treatment plan, and there was kind of nobody there to do it. And, and the the healthcare system did come up with sort of a half ass solution. Mm-hmm. Um, but the interesting part about it, uh, w- which was basically a single point of contact, was the the one group. That would not participate in the integrated solution were the oncologists, which is the most powerful people in the system. Oh, no. <laughs> that, that's, I didn't emphasize that in the book, or we didn't emphasize that in the book enough. But, but I mean, we're mostly talking about, about bad friction here, but sometimes it isn't the per, individual person to blame. Your story, every individual person meant well. Yeah. Um, it, and, and we're probably competent within their little silo or little job. Yeah. The problem is the handoff. The hand handoff, yeah, and,
2: and and the and the and the, and the yeah. <laughs> so we're trying to fix it now. And what I this, here's the th- really interesting thing because you say in the book when you set out you thought you were going to write a book about frictionless organizations. Yes, and, and that I think when you did the podcast, I think that's what I was picking up on on most of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it turns out like stress, you can't say friction is all bad.
3: No, 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 and, and and in fact, the num. In some ways, I almost feel like uh, I could write a whole nother book. And there's, I don't know, thirty five percent of the book is about is about when friction is good. Yeah, but there's there's so many times uh, when it's good, and and I, I think that given the business you're in, my yes. my absolute favorite story in the book is when Jerry Seinfeld. Is interviewed by the Harvard Business Review, which sounds like the most bizarre thing yeah, on yeah. earth. And in the editor of the Harvard Business Review, you know, it, 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 you know your listeners uh, will will know the story that Larry David and um, Jerry Seinfeld they wrote every episode. They fought like crazy with each other. I mean, you, you work with Larry David, you're going to fight. I mean, it's just it's the way it's going to be. <laughs> and, and 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 they struggle with every episode in McKinsey. And, and so so HBR asks. Can uh, McKinsey, the the famous consulting firm, sometimes infamous, could they make uh, the process more efficient? And Jerry Seinfeld says, "Who's McKinsey?" They explain it's a consulting firm, and he says, "Are they funny?" And they say, "No." And they and he said, "I don't need them. The hard way is the right way." And and I, just everything. If you look at the academic research on creativity, and there's lots of times when friction is necessary on creativity. I can't figure out. Any ways to to do it without it being filled with failure? I mean, so yes, sure. did, I, I mean, I, I don't know the percentage you would teach at Second City, but Seinfeld says he ends up keeping about one or two percent of the jokes that he tries. Is that I don't know? That sounds right.
2: Yeah, I, I think we probably fall in line with like uh, you, you keep a version around twenty to thirty percent. Okay, which, which, and I think that jives more with behavioral science in terms of right, like Epley's work around. You know, how much are we getting it in the moment? Right, right,
3: right, right. So. I mean, it, it, it's, I I I guess different things have a different sort of natural failure rate, yeah. Um, but but everything has a pretty high high failure rate, and then there's and then you know Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David. Uh, there's lots of evidence that that uh, the the best uh, the best teams fight in an atmosphere of mutual respect when they're doing creative work, and we can. Yeah. It, it's just not a very efficient process, and and uh, you know my my my. My uh, uh, pal uh, uh, um, Ed Catmull of Pixar fame. When I when I when I talk to Ed about efficiency, he just kind of glazes over. So yeah. we never we never talked about efficiency. We just talked about getting it right. We just yeah. iterate and iterate until it was right. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, cr-
2: creativity desires cr- constraints, and and I think you know, like you look at the Second City process. We put up an original show in twelve weeks, and. Uh-huh. They're, they're doing eight shows a week and they're improvising in front of audiences and they have a day of rest and then they come back in the work camp. But, but it, it is, so there's this very like uh, specific process in which chaos is happening oh, right uh, yeah and, and, that, and that is a, and, and so I, I think too, uh, if we, let's use two examples from the book in terms of
3: positive, uh, uh, one which needed friction, which is uh-huh. Google glass. <laughs> oh oh yeah so so Google Glass th- this is a great example of uh, so Google Glass essentially and and, and for y- your listeners and I, I'm in Silicon Valley so I make the mistake of pe- people think <laughs> assuming everyone knows every tech <laughs> and, 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 and and they and they don't and, and even in tech so so what Google did after when they were so rich it was ridiculous and, and and now they're having a little more financial discipline they started something called Google X or X which is a bunch of labs to do really creative breakthrough thing. so uh, self drive their self driving car uh, startup has been spun out, uh, but they not not for any of the projects has been very successful to tell you the truth. Um, so they have this largely unsuccessful R and D operation called uh, Google X or X, and uh, and and at one point uh, a team came up with these glasses called Google Glass that were sort of like a computer in your glass, and you'd look up in the corner and you'd see a, like a little screen, and you could adjust the thing, um, but uh, sort of like a watch, but. A on your head, uh, you know, an Apple watch on your head. And so the people in the lab, they were not ready to release it. And uh, and, and Sergey Brin, the co-founder and a guy who's worked with bazillions, he, he like grabbed it out of the lab and threw it into the marketplace and and made 5,000 of them and gave them to some of the most famous people in the world, had events in Paris and everything. And it turned out it was just an absolutely terrible uh, 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 you know, a terrible uh um, product. It did, you know, and at that point, it, and he pulled it off the market. He stopped using it, and that was a case where there wasn't enough friction. Uh, some of the other cases that we talk about in the book that are are more serious is Elizabeth Holmes, uh, yeah. Elizabeth Holmes, uh, trying to put her her uh what do you call it fraudulent blood testing uh okay. device on U.S. Army helicopters. Um, and uh, it didn't have FDA approval, and she still was pushing to get them on there. And, and I like I, I we have two students um, who who uh, started a company called uh, Sequel, which uh, reinvented the tamp- tampon, so it, it leaks less for uh, uh, more athletic women. Mm-hmm. They went through FDA approval. They just got FDA approval, and they also both graduated, unlike Elizabeth Holmes, so they're yeah. not dropouts. <laughs> so, yeah. so sometimes friction's good. Okay, and the other... Positive friction is this jumbo supermarket story. Oh, uh, uh, so the jumbo super. So let me sort of back up. Yeah. So, I, so I've gotten really obsessed. This is the paper right here with this research on savoring. Mm-hmm. There's some really cool research on savoring and, and how um, a hallmark of good mental health is, is that people slow down. They enjoy the good things in life. They anticipate how great they're going to be. And and and, and that's a good place to add friction is to get people to slow down and, and sort of enjoy and think about what's going on. And so Jumbler Supermarkets, which is they're the largest supermarket um, chain in the in the Netherlands and in Holland, in Holland and uh, and and there's actually um a big movement in Holland um of, out of concern for loneliness for older people who often are are quite lonely um and so what they did is in one in one um in, in one supermarket they experimented with a slow lane and the idea of a slow lane is that uh is it somebody has a conversation with the supermarket clerk Mm-hmm. And it works so well, they've scaled it up to 200 uh, different jumbo supermarkets. And and that's exactly it's, – it's like baking in inefficiency if, if, you want to, if you want to see what it is. So I thought that was a beautiful example of,
2: of savoring. So the curse of reading your book was, first of all, me sticking my nose into the uh, group sales department at Second City, which I'm thankful for. I think that they needed the help. Uh, but <laughs> I, I had just read about this. Uh, on the plane as I was going to Orlando for a meeting. Uh-huh. And then we're coming back the same day. And we're not that tight on time, but it's like getting a little tight on time. And I'm noticing that the very long line, even at TSA pre where me and my, my boss were, uh-huh. the, the woman checking everyone in had to have a conversation. Uh-huh. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> no! I, I'm so torn because I'm like, get me through this line. No, 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 That that, that That's... So uh, uh, this, I know, I know that that's not, we're not asking for it at TSA. However, I will uh, say I
3: got up there. I enjoyed my little bit with her. (laughs) So, but so it's interesting that, so one of uh, my early academic studies with a woman named Anat Raffaele, we Mm -hmm. looked at courtesy in 7-Eleven stores and we we tried to tie courtesy. uh, So whether the clerk smiled, established eye contact or said, thank you. We tried to link courtesy um, to store sales, and it, and it came out backward. Yeah, that 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 the more sales they had, the less courteous they were. And then we did some analysis, and what what we found was that the more sales that the line had, or, or the store had, and the longer the lines, the less courteous the clerk were. Because in some ways, the ex- just like your example, we expect the clerk. When it's not busy, it's just you. You might as well talk to them. What else yeah. do they have to do? Yeah. Maybe stock the shelves. But when it's really long, it's what we call busy store norms. And, and we would say that the the problem is, is that, is that that person was applying slow store norms to busy, to a busy store where, where the, so, 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 but, but that's a case where you're sort of, um, a, adjusting the savoring because it is not enjoyable to watch somebody have a long, uh, conversation when you just want to get me done. So.
2: <laughs> So I don't know that I put this together, or if you're explicit about it in the book, but is this so? You tell a story in the book about the uh, a big muckamuck at Seven Eleven, thinking that everyone needs to smile more. (laughs)
3: Well, 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 that, that, so, so that, that's a case of what, of what we call executive magnification. Yep. So, 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 uh, I mean, the, the first on ramp is, uh, you're an oblivious executive, sort of like the, the, the senior dean at, uh, or provost at Stanford who sent out this 1266 word email and you're oblivious to your cone of friction. Yep. And, and, and if you talk to senior executives and unfortunately or fortunately, whatever, I know way too many of them, they're always talking about, Um, resistance to change. I want to have digital transformation. I want to have AI. I want to have design thinking in my organization and the people are resisting it. But the one thing that they're pretty oblivious to is what we call executive magnification, that they have these weak signals and then people over amplify them because it's sort of like a baboon troop. Uh, the way a baboon troop is, is that uh is that the average member looks up at the alpha male every 30 or 40 seconds. When you're in power, people devote a lot more attention to you than you do to them. And yeah. so this guy, this is a long time ago at 7-Eleven, 25, 30 years ago, uh, before they sold it to a large Japanese company. And and uh, I think his name was Jody Thompson. And he went to a 7-Eleven store and one clerk was nasty to him and he went back to the office and come plane, and they spent millions of dollars having a courtesy campaign. And this is this and we were part of the research process because a good friend mm-hmm. of mine in graduate school was in charge of it. And, and we came up with quite definitive evidence, especially my friend Larry Ford, that people don't go to seven eleven stores for courtesy. They, no. they, <laughs> they want to get in and out fast. And if the clerk is really rude, they might notice it. But 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 I am so, there for eggs and for the <laughs> and for the rudeness. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, eggs and so everybody Wants, but but if it's really slow and it's just you and the clerk, they might be more likely to have a conversation because uh, this is customers as a source of entertainment, which is yeah, something uh, oh, I so know. funny. So, probably in my top 10
2: uh, books that I got to read this year and then have a podcast interview is uh, Lighty Clots and Subtract.
3: Oh, the book right here, I'm waving it around right there, now. you're waving it in front of me. <laughs> I love Lighty. Uh-oh. Yeah. And and um, because you read that
2: and you can't help but go, am I, I'm just adding, aren't I? And uh-huh. I've I, I told my wife about this and she had to have a, she's directing one of the touring companies at Second City right now. Uh-huh. She had to have a conversation with them about, you know, you adding more things is not going to get more laughs. And I'm like, oh, you should uh-huh. talk about Lottie Klotz's science. She goes, they don't care about the science. <laughs> Fair point. But, but I think it's, what's true is that is a, a really novel way of approaching uh, uh,
3: change and, and corrections and experimentation is what if we take away? Yeah. So, so, I mean, to, to sort of dig into that. So, so Lydie, Lydie and I, like, we're friends and we actually even wrote something about how universities need to do more subtraction together. So, right. so we're doing stuff together. Uh, but, but the stuff that Lydie um, and, and his co authors at Virginia tend to focus on is this notion that we as human beings, we're just wired. To solve problems naturally uh, by addition rather than subtraction, we sort of have to be, like like your wife did, we have to be prompted to think about subtraction. It doesn't come naturally. And to do a yes and to you, I've, I think you've heard this technique, yes and, before. I have. <laughs> to do the yes and. Uh, uh, one thing that makes it even worse are the kind of reward systems that many organizations have, including my own, Stanford University. Um, but uh, the one one of the problems is is that people who add more stuff who start programs, who build big, bigger fiefdoms, who add technologies, those are the people who tend to get rewarded, not the people who don't add anything in the first place or the people who subtract because when you start subtracting, there's almost always somebody who who it's there's this precious thing and you're taking it away from them. Mm-hmm. And that and, and that might lead me to maybe the most important insight in, in the book speaking of comedians uh, so George Carlin had this great line uh which is uh my my shit is stuff and your stuff is shit so all of our so, so we might think that everybody else should get rid of their app they should get rid of their meeting they should get rid of their initiative but my stuff so you know one of my stuff has been design thinking Yeah, and i and I, and uh it's just, you've been involved in the design thinking yeah. movement in various ways too and uh and that was sort of like a precious thing that i thought everybody should do and nobody should subtract well, the design thinking movement, I hate to say it, but it's sort of faded to some degree, in, yep. at least in companies. And and it's being subtracted, and, and maybe we all learned something from it, and it still is valuable. But but I think we might have pushed people to add it too much for too many places, and that might be one of the reasons that, as with almost all management movements, it's faded a bit. It's like too, agile. Like, like agile. Yeah, so we talk about agile in the book, too, yeah.
2: I mean, I had an agile, you know, we 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 get hired a lot to come in uh, to c- companies, of course. And, and a lot of times what we're doing is they're saying, well, we do agile. I'm like, okay, we understand that. And we can be complimentary or we do design uh-huh. thinking. Yeah, we understand that. We can be complimentary. And I remember my friend, Neil uh, uh, Stevenson, who ran the IDEO here in Chicago for many years. Uh-huh. I actually just had lunch with him today. Uh-huh. Uh, I remember him cautioning me. He's like, never make improv a
3: fad. <laughs> like, <laughs> as long <laughs> as you're not a fad.
2: People keep buying. Well,
3: so yeah. I mean, so I mean, let's talk about agile because that gets us to you know uh, probably one of my favorite phrases in the book, which I stole from a woman named Polly Leber, uh, who used to sort of be a management guru, which is jargon monoxide. Yep. So, so this is sort of another cause of friction where you got you got this challenge where people use language that's so complex, so incomprehensible, or meaningless that it just sort of clogs up the system, and and. And in the beginning, Agile was a really specific set of methods and philosophies about how to do software development, but now it's been applied to absolutely everything. And, and actually, I'm, I'm I'm looking at here in the screen, and maybe you can get it to your listeners somehow or another. There's this Australian um, Agile coach, a guy's name is Craig Smith. Mm-hmm. And, and he gives this talk where he reviews 40 Agile methods in 40 mi- minutes. And so I'm looking at it right now. I, I don't know what half this stuff is the Vanguard method. XP, Deming, Kanban, Lean, Lean Startup, Hybrid, Agile, Large Scale Scrum, uh, Open. Let's see, Scaled Agile Framework, Spotify Squatification. I don't know what Spotify. Oh my god! Oh, oh mob programming. So, so, so. To me, it, it, we were actually talking before about uh, Danny Kahneman et al.'s book Noise, yeah. mm-hmm. um, and 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 the way my summary of the book Noise, which we both read. Um, is is that uh, noise is a random scatter of ideas, so that it, so that it sort of means nothing. And to me, I think agile has devolved into a random scatter of ideas. As a term, and that might have happened a little bit with design thinking too. And I guess if I'm lucky, it'll happen with friction too, because that's a sign that you that you have some impact and some board. Sure, no, 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 yeah, yeah. You, <laughs> they, they just got caught with something new. It's
2: funny. My son, who uh, ba- abandoned his uh, corporate uh, career, he was doing uh, placement, uh, but he mostly placed uh, Scrum masters. And I remember him oh. saying, maybe "I should put in on my LinkedIn that I'm a Scrum Master Master." And <laughs> <laughs> A
3: scrum master master? scrum master master. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it it really is just – and and back to the sort of arc of these things. uh, So um, one of the most successful design thinking movements that I was was close to was one that was led by a woman you may know, Claudia Kochka, who was head of innovation at Procter & Gamble. And she really had – she had a huge effect in actually uh, getting um, products uh, li- like uh, the, the Magic Eraser in the, in the Mr. Clean Group and, and spreading uh, design thinking folks throughout the company, actually giving them roles in, in, in major businesses. And uh, she never used the term design thinking. She just used the word innovation. And this was before the design thinking movement started taking yeah. off because she said she, people would think it was a fad. So she just called it innovation. Yeah, She never used the word design thinking. And well, I, I, think, I think that's an interesting way to approach it. Yeah. I mean, I'll, here's our
2: dirty little secret is we're selling every one of these corporations play. And <laughs> they would not buy it if I called the play. <laughs> like, who's going to buy play? And, it's like, and and there's so much, as you know, there's so much science around uh, health outcomes and innovation and creativity and the need to play yeah. and the need to rest. And, like, corporate America ain't buying. <laughs> and they, and they, I mean, maybe one day, but cer- certainly not not now um there's so much cool stuff you talked about Seinfeld. I had that in my notes here's the other thing I want you to talk about because i I don't know that I knew about the simple sabotage field manual oh. uh, this is the o s s precursor to like the CIA right
3: yes so so this is who knows whether this stuff was was actually done yeah. but but uh so uh this is the sim- simple sabotage field manual and, and this is the general idea to back up that sometimes friction is weaponized uh that's in such a way it's good for you and it's bad for other people and, and in this case th- this was this was sort of like for spies and for other allies of of uh the US government you know the british and so forth against the nazis and, and the idea was that there was a whole list of things that you were supposed to do like uh, like ask for um for uh more and more meetings more and more rules, keep asking questions, be obtuse oh and and then the other thing you should do is to try to promote the people who are incompetent and slow things down and screw things up and try to demote and fire the competent people and, and so the, the it was this this it's free online people have to buy it. it's it's this oss um, simple sabotage field manual and 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 the idea was to sort of clog up the system. And, and unfortunately to go to corporate America, uh, that, that, uh, and also other corporations, a lot of them have this incentive to make it really easy for us to sign up. For, and uh, the example I use in the book is the New York Times, because the New York Times wrote an article, uh, criticizing Amazon for how to, how hard it was to get rid of their Prime account. And somebody else wrote an article saying how hard it was to get rid of their, um, New York Times subscription. Yeah. And, and I, I tried that with FT. I could not believe, uh, Financial Times how many steps I had to go through to cancel my Financial Times subscription. And just as a, footnote to this. Um, There there is a business case uh, for not weaponizing friction against consumers. And we use the example of Netflix. uh, Because in Netflix, and this was about 2005 or 2006, there was a lot of concern in the company. And this came from Patty McCord, who was then basically head of HR, and also a friend of mine, former student of mine, Eric Colson, who was a senior algorithm type guy. And they were embarrassed because it was so hard to cancel your Netflix subscription. And they talked Reed Hastings into making it really easy. And it, 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 it's so easy that I almost canceled it accidentally while I was testing out when I was doing oh. the book. It's just one button. And, 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 and Eric Colson had a really interesting point about this. He said, yes, in the short term, you make more money. If it's impossible for people to cancel things that are driving them crazy, that's how gym membership works. Everybody signs up the gyms at the beginning of the year and it's impossible to cancel your subscription. But, but Eric made this argument and so did Patty that one of the reasons that, that Netflix has been so successful over the long term is it's really easy to cancel. So they have really great data about customer dissatisfaction. Uh, so as soon as, so as soon as people are unhappy, they they cancel, and since it's frictionless almost to cancel, that that they know when it's time to make adjustments. So they mm. believe that in addition to th- this being something they're less embarrassed to talk to their relatives about. I think that's what drove them initially. Um so Eric who does the algorithmic stuff and does different A-B testing, from an A B testing standpoint, you learn more quickly when it's easier for people to cancel. So it's another yes and situation.
2: Yeah, that you know, that reminds me here, uh, so for years, uh, a guy named Bill Wirtz owned the Chicago Blackhawks and he would not allow the games to be televised. Only only franchise that would do it. He's like, if they're getting it for free, they're not gonna come in. So uh-huh. he dies, his son Rocky takes over, he immediately has them televised, and they win three Stanley Cup championships. <laughs> it's you know, and and there's so many uh, a, a examples of that. I don't know if I ever told you this this story. Um, uh, I was working. Uh, I, I'm not going to go into all the details, but we're at the uh, uh Institute of Jewish Learning, and we're doing uh-huh. a set of workshops. And we're doing an exercise called Follow the Follower. And the exercise in, in this particular version was the teacher told one person in the class they were the leader, and everyone was to just silently walk around the room, do kind of like a spacewalk. Um, and then that person who was the leader and no one else knows, they need to find someone non-verbally and hand off leadership. And that person then has to take it and do the same. Oh, that's and, so cool. Well, and what was interesting is how Lewis, the director of Spertus, turns to me and goes, you're doing Peter Drucker. And I'm like, great, who's Peter Drucker? This <laughs> <is here." laughs> so, and, and you quote Drucker, but, you know, he's talking about like, this is this idea of shared leadership, this, is this uh-huh. idea of knowledge workers and all that. And one of the things that you talk about in the book that has been a huge source of conversation between my wife and I and others here uh-huh. is hierarchies. Uh-huh. And the idea that. I know we're pretty flat here, right. and and that often is really great for creativity. But sometimes it's really not. And I think from what I'm reading that you're talking about, and I've got this book on ethics that I'm reading right now, that hierarchy—you can't get rid of hierarchies. It's a little bit like air.
3: Yeah. Well, that that so to you know to to riff off that uh, so uh, and I, I just I had I had this argument a little bit with somebody just yesterday. is that uh, there's no way I can figure out, as an organizational theorist, um, for organizations of any size, how to just organize them, how to structure them without having different levels of power, without having some specialization, without having some rules or norms. I mean, Mm -hmm. baboon troops, they have different norms. And some baboon troops – uh, are nastier than other baboon troops. Robert Sapolsky, yeah. who follows baboon troops, can show you that in some uh, that uh, that that there's not as much sort of beating up of the of the young adolescent males as other ones. And 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 I don't know any way to organize a system. And in fact, uh, the, uh, uh, two of my colleagues, uh, um, Deb Deb and I'll try to remember the other co-author. They did a general review of research on hierarchy, and essentially they'll show you that even in systems that claim to have no Hierarchy, there's almost always a hierarchy. Um, and then the other thing is when you tell people in groups, there will be no hierarchy. So, leaderless groups, they have all sorts of friction until they figure out who's in charge. Yeah. So, so, I, so I can't. And, 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 and the argument we make is we're not saying that people should be authoritarian and nasty. Worse, you know, there, there are many leaders who are benevolent and caring and share power and so forth, that that's important. And, and to do a yes and one. The thing that, that, uh, I think great leaders do, and this is stealing research from, uh, uh, Lindy Greer. She's a professor at, uh, University of Michigan. She's done all these studies that showed that what the best leaders do is, I guess, I'm, cause I'm talking to you, I'm yes ending like crazy, that, that, that they, uh, they, they exercise authority and they let go of it. So this idea, she describes it of flexing the hierarchy. That's what right. great, what great leaders do is they say, let's brainstorm, uh, Let's, let's have everybody do it their own way for, uh, a couple of months or a couple of years and see who wins. But then they will sort of, uh, activate the, the hierarchy to take charge. And, 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 uh, and, and, I think that academics you talk about ethics who study, uh, conflict. And boy, are we in a time of international conflict now yeah. and, and, and or conflict within organizations that, uh, that some, Somebody who has a stronger authority is one of the only ways sometimes to stop people from fighting. And in and, and, and the way Lindy would do it in her like studies, she did some case studies of 10 startup CEOs. And what the best ones would do, one of the times they would intervene, is when people would get mired in endless, stupid conflict. Um, and they'd say, we're going to make a decision. I'm sorry you don't like it. We're, we, 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 you know, we've got to ship the product. Let's go. Yeah, or we've got to mi- end the meeting. <laughs> Let's stop fighting and go to work. I think the important thing
2: there is understanding that as human, as human beings, you know we resist change, we don't like change, we like our patterns and, and that but, but that nothing is static and, no. and, and, and everything has context, and so you, you, you've got to have and again, we talked about this with creativity, it desires constraints, it needs that. If we're you know no one no one leaves the theater saying, "I wish that play were longer." <laughs> it doesn't happen.
3: Yeah, although so, oh, no, no it, it it is interesting though. Is some things are so well done uh, that that uh, that sometimes I wish that that they that they were that, that they were uh, longer too. So I've seen some great three-hour movies. I wanted. I, I have
2: I have too, but you don't say it should have been seven hours. No, you're right. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> All right. I was on the phone the other day with a friend of mine who she had worked for decades at this one organization. She left. And she's at this 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 new place and i did because you know she's got a very sunny instagram profile and i'm like how's the new gig and she like it was the saddest response it was just sort of like no i it's not my people but you know i need the money kind of thing oh. and you talk about you speaking at this law firm and one of the partners coming up to you afterwards and telling you about this like group you started at the firm called the Grasses Browner club. Oh
3: yeah. 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 This yeah. Is, this, so I told her uh, that story, but please tell us that story. Okay. So, so I, I'll name the law firm. I was a speaker. Right. I, it was King and Spalding, a yes. huge law firm. And so I'm at, a, I'm at a partner retreat, and uh, I gave a talk about scaling. But you know, it's after reads words, and we're just all sort of talking about about stuff. And, uh, and 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 one of the the general argument I make about uh, leading organizational change, and I actually first heard this from uh, David Kelly at IDEO, wow. and and I eventually followed the D School. That that when people would complain, he would say. Uh, everywhere you go, it's going to be difficult and messy. If you can find a place where things are perfect, go there, but I don't think that place exists. And there are some places that are better than other, but, but this idea that life's going to be beautiful and organized and you're never going to need to struggle. Well, I think that's one of the things that people like me who write books sometimes make the claim. And I should stop even saying that ever, um, because, you know, it's the classic thing. And and even I'm going to get in trouble with this, uh, you know, uh, one of my favorite books ever is "Creativity Incorporated" by Ed Ed Catmull mm-hmm. about Pixar. And and one of the things people said at Pixar was, "Wow, that sounds like a great organization. I wish I worked there." So that was, one of the, and so what happened to King and Spalding was that uh, at this at this retreat of uh, three or four hundred uh, partners of this law firm, they had affinity groups. Like they had the gay lawyers, they had the lawyers who went to Harvard. I mean, they had the black lawyers. They had like the little groups who would sort of sort of meet. Um, and one of the groups was the Grasses Browner Club. And The Grasses Browner Club were people who left King and Spalding for another law firm. And it was even worse. So they came back. Yeah. And, and, and to me, that was, that was, that was sort of, that was sort of a lesson that sometimes life is messy. And, and that's why, I mean, the, the very ending three paragraphs or whatever of the book, uh, I talk especially, um, about um, a woman named Clara Shai. She's an amazing woman, wrote a bestseller on the Facebook generation before she was 30. She's now CEO of AI at Salesforce. And, uh, and Clara, Says when she's leading large scale change, she starts off by telling people that life is messy. But Clara is a very rational person. I love how Clara handles this. She she does what she calls separation of concerns because she was the number one student in computer science at Stanford. She's like freaking brilliant, yeah. and uh, and so she what she does is she says I got one group whose job it is to just go ahead with the plan, and then I have the group whose job it is to deal with the messes. So I love that idea. The your job, you're the messy people, and you're the neat people. Mm-hmm. So, so you kind of need both in life. So I thought that was a cool solution. I've
2: been doing a thing at my keynotes where I t- I say to the audience raise your hand if you ever worked at pl- a place you would say is truly functional.
0: <laughs>
3: I have only had one audience where anyone rose a hand. You know, you know, I would raise half a hand now because I've been at Stanford forty years. It, the last that's three- not functional. That's not functional. No, no. I, I'm I'm sort of yeah. looking at the door a little bit. But the last three or four years, I've had a department chair. her username's Pam Hines. Yeah. That Stanford has many dysfunctions. All you have to do is read the press about some yes. little troubles we have. But but uh but to Pam Hines' credit, she is so good. Uh, she's the best boss I've ever had. She yeah. is so she is so good. I mean, for example, you know, says I am interested in friction. She does. She has clear to the staff that it's their job to make things easier on students and faculty so they can focus on on their teaching and research and learning and oh well there you I, go. I, I i mean it's it's like like I and, and it's not perfect but it's better anywhere else it's it's stanford that i i know right now uh, it's well, unbelievable unbe- and she has actual management skill which is rare in academia so yeah and this is a this is a uh I should write about this more because I, I really
2: I, – people don't talk enough about this, and I think it's very true, which is we don't solve these problems uh, enterprise-wide. That's impossible. We don't uh, solve them uh, individual by individual.
3: We can do right. team by team. You do, team, do by team, by team. team by team. You can do team by team. And, and I, I would – I'm having so much fun saying yes and to you. I can't believe okay. <laughs> So 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 so. What, what, when, when when these things are most functional, I think mm-hmm. they're top-down and they're bottom-up. Like, yeah, and I, yeah, yeah. and, and, and I, I and we have the case of AstraZeneca in the book uh, where they, they – who knows uh, if their calculation is right, but they claim they would they re- reduce 2 million hours of people waste by doing everything from doing top-down changes to make it really hard to add a lot of people when you CC'd an email. I thought that was pretty good. Mm-hmm. To, I don't know, to, to, to local changes in, um, South America or even, you know, uh, one country, Colombia, where, where, uh, it, where they, they got rid of sort of inefficient processes, when there were six processes and they cut it to one. When I mean, that was top down and bottom up. And I, and I think in the best organizations, and if, if, and, and I don't want to be too idealistic, but, uh, but people tend to see themselves as friction fixers and to be aware of trying to be trustees of others' time. So, and there's some organizations that are better at that than others. Yep. 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 All right. In a moment, I'm going to ask you for a thank you because story, but before we do
2: that, um, I don't think I hate anything as much as I hate buying a car. <laughs> I can't, I, I prefer my colonoscopy. If you, <laughs> Me too. I, I, I prefer the dentist, um, minor surgery. It, it is, and I have done the last time I did this, I literally like looked the person. I go. I'm going to plead with you. I'm in a very bad place right now. I'm dealing with like a family health issue. This right. I, I need, and this is all true. And I was uh. like, I just need to not like. Let's just agree on the price. I don't want to go back and find out that it was something else. i like, right. like, can you just like? I just want honesty. I just want. And of course, I got screwed. Of um, and they did not agree. And then I got into all these hassles. Um, you you give a reason, I think, in the book
3: why that might be. And well, this, well, the, the, I mean, the, there's a, there's a lot of reasons, but but one cause, <laughs> but one one cause. One if we we sort of, if, if, if we sort of back up, so so uh, so one of the things that causes leaders in, in people in, in organizations to be oblivious, in this case, to to uh, customers' experience is they have, uh, and this is one of the definitions of privilege, is the absence of inconvenience that the little people like you and me have to go through when they buy a car. Uh-huh. So General Motors has had this program, and, and I fact-checked this was true up till 2022, and I think it still exists. They had, they had this program where actually quite down to a lower level than you would expect, that, and it depends how senior and executive you were and in what era, but somewhere between every three and six months you get a free car. Um, or you get a car that doesn't cost a, a couple hundred dollars a month, but you can't, there's no negotiation there. And, and and what happens is you pick the car. I I guess if you're Mary, Mary Barra, the CEO, you get to get a Corvette or something like that. But if you're a regular Joey, get to get, you know, maybe something like a bolt or something and, uh, and, and they give it to you, you drive it for six months and then, uh, they give you another car. And, 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 and the guy that I fact checked this with, who had just left as an executive just like a couple of years ago, he said it's even worse than that, that, uh-huh. that they actually have, you can gas up your car and get it serviced in, in the larger uh, facilities. Or you can take it to one of the larger facilities if one's far away, and and so if you think about that, you're even protected from gas prices or or, or maintenance. So 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 literally, it's protected from the inconvenience, and I, and I do think that that's one of the one of the many causes why buying a car is so inconvenient and so difficult. Uh, there, there might be other reasons as well. So the uh, reason we're,
2: the reason we're burdened by this friction is because it's a frictionless experience for the executives. Who yeah. Yeah. It. yeah. I mean, it's, 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 and look, I, you know, you know you know that anytime i mean uh, Dr. keltner's uh uh, or, uh keltner's work around the automobiles and 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 status and and you know people in the nicer
3: cars tend to run the stop signs more than other right, people right, yeah 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 I, so yeah yeah power, power you know feeling powerful is not necessarily good for you, right and, and, but one thing i would i would add is is that is that it is not uh, you know the Docker Keltner stuff is not guaranteed. You will behave that way. Yes. there are there are some leaders who actually don't fall prey to that. And there's some interesting research by my colleague, uh, friend, uh, uh, Frank Flynn at Stanford. It turns out that some of the leaders who are most likely to be the best leaders and not to fall prey to what we call power poisoning, yep. guilt. So being Jewish and being raised as a good old fashioned guilty family, this it turns out that guilty people are more likely yeah. to be chosen to be in power and they're more likely to be better leaders be, because they feel so guilty. They don't want to exploit people. So 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 that, that's that's one of the solutions is, is get like a guilt ridden, you know, sort of leader. <laughs> so this is interesting. I, I, um
2: when I was, I was just down in Orlando with my boss, who's the CEO of the company. <laughs> I'm name check him, Ed Wells. Yeah. And we had this, uh, incident where our cab pulled up to the location we're having our meeting and the credit card thing wouldn't work. And it uh-huh. was just like, it was blank. And the guy calls in into the dispatch and they're not being helpful. And he's like, look, you guys can just go. You know, it's fine. And uh-huh. Ed's, Ed's like, I don't. I'm not going to stiff you. We didn't have any cash. I I see a bank over there. So he went to the bank, went to the ATM, paid the guy and we got out. I just turned to Ed. I go, you're the only CEO in America that would have done that. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not sure I would have done it. Um, And, and one of the things about, I, 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 you know, quite honestly, I don't think I've ever had an ethical boss. I, I, I might,
3: I might've had a couple of them. (laughs) You might've had a couple, maybe.
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, it was just it was really and i it's just i've told the story a bunch because i was like you could kind of know like this is like the behavior of the person who's up top is that they took the time because they recognize this is i don't know where this person's you know at and you know it, it was just it was really nice and and i i don't know man i think that um you know, you don't mention uh, dunning kroger in
3: in the book. I don't oh no no, know. No, 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 Dunning-Kruger. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. That that, that what, what is it? That the more confident you are at something, the better you think you are at it, or something. Yeah, like yeah. That. The more confidence you have, the less uh,
2: uh, probably capability uh, yeah. of actually doing the thing. Um, yeah. In that, but but it uh, you, like power. Does, um, blind you. And, and, and I, I know this in the sense of like, I've got, I have a lot of status in the position I'm in. Uh So when I have, when I have to have a conversation with someone where I want their honesty, I don't stay behind my desk. I have two
3: chairs that are next to each other. Uh And there's now, little things you can do. That's, I guess, a nudge. Well, 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 well one of the one of the things so, – so my wife, who she's been – ran two big organizations. She was uh, managing partner of a large law firm. That was one of the things that led me to write the no asshole rule since there's a lot of asshole management in law firms. Yep. And, and, and then she was CEO of the Girl Scouts of Northern California, much different uh, uh, population. Mm-hmm. But in both – yeah yeah both much different organizations uh uh oh um, but uh, but one of the things that she always did which to me takes an incredibly thick skin is that is that in many organizations there's uh, the person who uh, uh talks a lot and gossips a lot yeah and complains a lot she yeah. would seek out that person and try to become friends with that person mm-hmm. because because even though she said it would sometimes be hard to take, and this is a psychological safety thing, she tried to make it safe for that, that person to complain yeah. and give her the bad news and everything. And the, uh, the other thing about it, she said, which is, you know, a little bit more self-serving. She said, you know, people who are central in gossip networks. If you can get in there, you sometimes can make the gossip a little better than a letter, rather than a little That's worse for right. yourself. So, That's but right. I, so I, I thought that was a pretty good strategy that, to use. Although I'm not sure I could do it myself. So, anyway. No, I
2: know. It's a, it's it's hard, you know, uh I said this to someone today that um uh it it, it uh, one, one tactic I wish I had uh throughout my career was knowing to shut up. And it's really like that that took a long time. <laughs> And but, that's again one of those things. Like people will tell you things if you are just quiet and let them tell you things instead of adding in your all your stuff. If that's the point of the exercise.
3: Yeah, so. I, I think I think Elon Musk. Uh, There's a book by Dan Lyons, STF. I had Dan like on the podcast. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah I love. So I blurb I that book. I love that book. And it, it, I think that's the book that Elon Musk needs to read. Yes, I'll right send that
2: to Elon <laughs> for him not to read. Uh, so, all right. So, uh, for guests who've been on before and have already done a yes and story, we ask for a thank you because story. You and I kind of went back and forth on what that what that meant, and uh, it, it turns out it's a really incredible technique for staying inside a difficult conversation. So, do you have a thank you because story for us?
3: Oh, well, I have so many thank you because uh you know, I I just live around people who argue with me and and uh and, and convince me I'm wrong. But but one of the thank you because stories that I would have is, is that uh I when it comes to the friction fixing thing, if I, if I was going to fault myself, I I I'm a little bit too impatient and not understanding of people who don't do it as fast as I think they should. Mm-hmm. And 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 there's a lot of reasons why people don't get, uh, people, and I'm talking about getting rid of bad friction, why people go slowly when I think they should go fast. And, and, and an example of this, and I learned this from, this is my favorite example of friction fixing in the book. Uh, so there's a nonprofit in Michigan called Sevilla, mm-hmm. and, um, it was founded by a guy named Michael Brennan, who I met at the Stanford Design School when he was there on a little sabbatical. And they were obsessed with the fact, that there was a form that was filled out by 2.5 million mission genders a year to get benefits, you know, food, extra income, shelter, uh, medical care, 2.5 million residents a year, a thousand questions, 42 pages long. The the classic stupid question was, when was your child conceived? Uh, which was asked of everybody, even people who didn't have children. Yeah. And um it, just this terrible form. And... uh And, and, and it actually Michael Brennan and his team got them to come up with a new form that's 80% shorter. People make far fewer mistakes. There's far fewer uh, visits to the office to, you know, far fewer forms rejected. It's kind of an amazing transition. But, but one of the reasons they were successful, um, Adam Selzer, who's one of the co-founders, he said, one of the reasons we were successful is he said, although I'm a naturally impatient person, we did all these things to slow down. First of all, to bring uh, the gov- the the bureaucrats on board. So th- they actually had the top four or five people fill out the form, and only one of them had ever filled out the form before. And the head of the agency, his name I think is Terry Brewer, he only got to page eight and he realized there was a problem. So uh-huh. they came on board. And then when they had a prototype, um as 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 adam Seltzer told me it's a sev- there were 1700 pages of rules we had to comply with before we could implement the form so so, so there, this idea that, that, that sometimes being patient and going really slow when you're doing something complicated, that's something that, uh, that, that I'm trying to thank people for. And I'm trying to be patient and slow down when things are hard. And one thing, and this isn't in the book, I'll end with this, uh, that, uh, since the book came out, th- th- this just came out. It was one of those, um, academic studies. They did brain stan- scans, fMRIs or something like that. So there, there's some new research that shows that people who have higher IQs, y- yes, they make simple decisions and solve simple problems more quickly. But people who are smarter, they solve complex problems more slowly because they take the time to oh. figure out the complexity and they're more often to be right. So, wow. So, and this is back to you know good versus bad friction, yeah. I guess. And, and and I think that's one reason that uh, towards the end of this book project, and since the book is done, I've gotten more enamored about when things ought to be ought to be slow, uh, both because we make better decisions and because it's just better for our minds too. I mean, having mentioned Kahneman, that that feels like System One, System Two. Yes. And
2: one of the things, if you think about what an improviser is doing, who has no script is the need to, cause you're not a good improviser if you're pre-writing, so you yeah. really do have to listen to what the person's saying and then just come out and say whatever, you know, first thought, best thought. But it is that sort of back and forth, system one, system two, system one, system two. And I think one of the reasons all these superstars come out of Second City, it's not because uh-huh. they the same casting director forever, it's they're all trained in this methodology.
3: Ooh, Ooh, well that's really interesting yeah yeah I, I I mean you you are a sophisticated person about bringing the behavioral science to your life and yeah, to me that's just system one uh system two although i I mean I love Danny Kahneman's work but one of the things that Kahneman's one of the first people to to talk about is he's such a rational person he sometimes forget it's about emotion yes. and oh, I've heard, yeah, I've heard yeah. him I've, I've heard him say that that before and, and and there's there's other emotional reasons one other reason for friction you know positive friction to sort of end with which I've really gotten interested in it is that there's all this evidence, you know, with the Supreme song, You Can't Hurry Love, yep. that, that to develop deep personal relationships with a, in a duo and a team, that uh, it takes a while to do that, to have a really, really great team. It tends to be people who worked together before um, on different sorts of projects and got to know each other. Yep. So there, there's some things that are hard to make efficient. The book is called The
2: Friction Project. Uh, Bob Sutton, thank you for coming on the pod again.
1: Oh, it's really fun. Getting to Yes And is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor is Iridian Fierro from WGN. We get support at The Second City from Colleen Fahey, Mike Farinaccio, and Emma Smith. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about The Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com, or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com.
0: i